Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, and bonjour to you. We are heading across the channel for the big thing on the podcast today as we examine Macron Mark II. What does his victory in the French presidential elections mean for France, for Britain and the rest of Europe? That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And today we've got Libby Purvis from The Times and from The Atlantic, Tom McTague. Let's start with the big uh, sort of global political news story of the day. Uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, wins... Um, and you've written, I mean, it's a quite, I mean, it's, uh, it's a hugely flattering sort of profile of him you've written for uh, The Atlantic, Tom. Um, but uh, <laughs> selfish, arrogant, he believes it's the centre of the world. Um, uh, quoting the old uh, what Winston Churchill thought of uh, Charles de Gaulle. What, what, do you, what do you make of the result and what uh, Macron should take from it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite um, hard to sort of, see the wood for the trees isn't it in this uh in this french election because you, you know so many of these pieces have said uh we'll look at the far right they've grown from you know uh the father who got 20 percent to uh marine le pen who got 30 odd percent last time and now she gets 40 percent. so you know the far right are rising but at the same time you know you can't put that above the fact that macron has won quite a stonking victory here on an avowedly sort of pro-european liberal centrist platform that you know that means something just as lots of people voting for Le Pen means something Uh, and I suppose I I was thinking about this and Thatcher's legacy and all of these figures that we look back on and think of as revolutionary great leaders but actually they you know dodged and dived and they were hated by large parts of the country as well so I could I can imagine something you know in five years time Macron is, is is there and and he has achieved quite a lot. He is now the sort of you know one of the leaders of Europe, uh, and and I think this we, we're in danger of missing that sort of fundamental reality here. Uh, Libby, it is still extraordinary, isn't it? That sort of if you went back sort of, sort of six seven years ago, he was a former middle ranking minister in the French government, planning to launch a new political party, which which lots of people thought might have gone the same way as what we later saw with Change UK. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's 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 remarkable. And I have to say, after this election, what I am liking, I've not always been a great Macron fan, but the rhetoric is good. He is admitting that it was horror at Le Pen 
which gave him the majority. He's saying, you know, I understand, you know, I owe you. Um, and he's saying, I could do better. I mean, I hope he does. But the, the rhetoric, as I say, is good. It is right that he should admit and be very public about the fact that he knows that, uh, very similarly to our last election, you know, where, where um, Boris Johnson was elected because people were in such absolute horror of <laughs> the Labour leader Corbyn. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think it's good to be right out there and admit these things and say, I now govern for everybody. I, I hope, you know, I, I, have, I have hopes for everybody. It is just rhetoric, but it's the right rhetoric to admit it. And I suppose it's um, uh, it's also one of those things, you know, the, the, the reaction to Macron Libby and the result generally is it's one of those where everyone can claim that either they were right or their worldview is being confirmed. You know, you know you've had, um, well, e even Le Pen has declared it a victory for her. Um, even when on the strictest uh, yeah, but that, interpretation. That always happens, doesn't it? And I think the number of times that the Liberal Democrats have said that it was a pretty good result for them, and it clearly hasn't been. They always, everyone always says that. I think you can just discount that. Um, and uh, how do you think the uh, Boris Johnson will respond to this in the in the longer term, Tom? Well, I, I, they don't get on, do they? Fundamentally, I, I think they've they, they, they kind of eye each other up. And we, Johnson, I think, looks at Macron and sees uh, somebody who's quite impressive that he wants to go toe-to-toe -to -toe to, uh, against. He wants to uh, to outbid. And I think Macron looks at Johnson and, and just doesn't respect him at all and sees him as a bit of a, a, bit of a clown, a, cl a sort of smart clown, but nevertheless a clown. Isn't part of the issue, Libby, that actually they were, they were more similar than probably either of them would like to admit? I thought actually the... Um... The uh, description that Tom used, he's a self, he's selfish, he's arrogant, he believes he's the centre of the world, uh, which is what how uh, Churchill described the goal. I mean, actually, uh, you could have been describing Churchill, you could also be describing Boris Johnson. <laughs> yes. the, uh, the, the terrible twins, except that obviously one likes older women and one likes younger women. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's that distinction. Maybe that's, maybe that's why they can't get on. Uh, maybe that's the only, the only thing. Well, as we're drifting into uh, lazy sexism, uh, let's, talk about, <laughs> let's talk about legs. Um, Libby, what have you made of legs gate? This, this story uh -oh. that... Um, I mean, the weird thing about the story, is it the heart of it? It's Tory MPs admitting that Boris Johnson's not very good at PMQs. Uh, and their explanation for this is because he's distracted by Angela Rayner's legs. Again, that says much more about Boris Johnson than it does about the owner of the legs. Well, whichever mad and entity backbench, miserable, hopeless, dinosaur Tory MPs said this, I totally recognise it. It is an ancient fear of women. It is the old Eve. You know, they can throw a man off his off his stroke because, because they're just so dangerous if they undo so much as a button or actually own legs and have actual knees. You know, it, it's, it is completely, it is so ancient dinosaur and ridiculous that, I mean, that Boris was quite right to sort of leap into defence of her. Um, uh, and also the, the extraordinary idea that, um, you know, he has such fantastic debating skills. You know, that, well, that, was an, the, that was the best. Uncrossing of legs. He's a hopeless debater. His he's a great, he's a great training, apparently. He's, he's a rhetorician. He's not a debater. Um, uh, but it is, I mean, it's so ancient and so weird that in a way I'm quite glad this has happened because it sort of shows that those blokes are still out there who are so terrified of women and women as sexual temptresses uh, that, that, you know, that occasionally you need to drag 
these things out into the open and point at them and laugh hoarsely. That's the only thing <laughs> to do. Tom, it did have all the hallmarks, and I don't know who the MP was who told this to develop on Saturday. It did have all the hallmarks of probably somebody who went to an all-boys school and has found <laughs> uh, the prospect of any women still quite a terrifying thing to have to navigate. Ooh, make sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, whoever this is is clearly staring at Angela Rayner's legs over the uh, over the dispatch box, isn't he? So it's kind of which is kind of grim thought. Um, I don't know that one of the things I I I, I thought about um, reading this was Boris clearly um, likes Rayner or respects Rayner in a, in a sort of he he likes that she's got this sort of personality in a fight. I've I've seen it a few times in Parliament where he's sort of dismissed Kia, who he obviously sees as this awful, like boring kind of man who's who sticks to the rules. And he and he likes the fact that Rayner uh, has got a you know a bit of something about her. But God, the other thing that I just hated about this whole story was all these Tory MPs tweeting out, oh, oh, I disagree with her on almost everything, but uh, she shouldn't receive this. Why do you have to put that first bit? Why can't you just send a tweet that says, <laughs> well, this is... This is horrible. You know, why? it happens all the time in politics. I don't understand it. Why do you think you have to declare how much you disagree with somebody before you say that they shouldn't get abuse? Then there was also a sort of um, a, a campaign for, for Glenn Owen, the, the political editor of the Mail on Sunday, uh, who wrote the story, to lose his lobby pass and <laughs> access to Parliament. Libby, that strikes me as a, as a, as a sort of ridiculous... Um, the, the Twitter. Twitter is going to decide who's allowed into Parliament and what they're allowed to write. Yeah, in, in a way, it would be quite nice if um, if Glenn Owen were to stand up and say, right, would you like to know which Tory MP it was who said this to me? <laughs> you know, it was so-and-so and point the finger. Um, no, it's it, 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 that that would be a mistake, I think. That would be a pity. It was crass. It was stupid. It was repeating something which certainly exists in little mad little corners of the party um, and shouldn't. But as I say, I'm quite glad it's, it's exposed. You know, these yeah. are the kind of people that you have got in your party, you poor, poor things things you know you've really got to drag them up to date a bit and actually a um, couple of uh, was it last last week i think barry schumann the labour mp called for quentin letts to lose his pass uh because oh, like and actually lindsay hoyle to be fair said you know that's the freedom of the press uh you know the, the, the press come in uh, we can't have mps deciding who's allowed into parliament that's basically what happened like 200 years ago uh, and then, you know, then we got the right to go in and report on what was happening in Parliament. You know, the answer is, if you don't like it, don't buy the mail on Sunday. Not to start, you know. I mean, I think the obvious the obvious way to solve this is we should just get to see Glenn Owen's legs. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, thought... he, might, he might uncross them. We don't want that. <laughs> right, that's quite enough of that. Um, uh, fine, <laughs> let, uh, Libby, let's, let's talk about your column today. And yeah, uh, like... there's a, a nice piece about radio. Yes, well, it, it was just a, there was a wonderful little little uh, one of those archive snippets in the Times, which are always worth reading from a hundred years ago. It was a thoughtful little piece saying, now that we're going to have this radio thing, which hadn't yet started, remember, it was months ahead. It's before the BBC Company was was, was started. Um, it said these people, these heralds, you know, they're going to come into your ears in every home in a way that's never happened before. You know, previously people had to gather around a platform and hear somebody on a very primitive loudspeaker or megaphone, um, and. So 
suddenly the voices would be heard. And what sort of people would you want to hear? And it's sort of, you know, and uh, the, he's talking about the announcers. But then I suddenly think, actually, this was the beginning of a time when it was necessary for people in any kind of public life to try and sound nice and reliable and bright and not stammer and uh, be across their brief and so on. In other words, to be lovable or likable rather than just right and wise. So just writing great things or doing great things was never going to be enough anymore. You know, even sort of authors were going to have to be dragged out of their ivory towers and meant to go on the radio or the television. It was the beginning of an age of a different kind of fame, a fame based on this sort of slightly superficial thing of how your voice sounds, you know, and how you how you present yourself. And I thought, gosh, that was the beginning of celebrity. It wasn't television. It wasn't cinema that brought on that kind of celebrity. It was universal voices, radio. And I just thought, hey, let's think about that. And so it was, it was fun to think about. It was also, I, I enjoyed particularly the, <laughs> the, your, the, the, the bit on accents. Um, and, uh, you know, because I, I feel like we're still having this argument now about uh, accents on TV and people complain about certain people on, on the TV and radio. But it, this was sort of almost immediate. Um, uh... Yes, he, the, the Times spotted it. The Times writer, whoever it was, spotted it very early on. He said, you know, even the Oxford accent can annoy people. You know, that every accent has a capacity to annoy some people. And they spotted that terribly early on. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, um, you're discouraged from pronouncing house heis. <laughs> which is very good. Um, uh, I, I remember once we were in a shop, or if I were in a shop, I think in Putney, and there were a group of people, I mean, clearly we couldn't afford to buy anything, we were just browsing, and uh, some people were talking, I think they were talking about what they were going to do for Christmas, and somebody said, oh, we're just going to go down to our place in Wilsh, and they were too posh to finish uh, the, Wilsh. <laughs> It was just uh, much too posh. Um, uh, and there's, uh, but, there, but even then, they had a, York, a Yorkshireman reading the news, Libby, as well, which, um, you know. Wilfred Pickles Wilfred in the Pickles. 1940s read the news, and some people hated it. Some people said that it was a ruse to prevent the Nazis imitating him because they wouldn't be able to do Yorkshire. But actually, I think it was, it was more of a Churchill thing. It was Churchill saying, we're all in this together and, and encouraging the use of, of that, uh, you know, Wilfred Pickles accent. But what you also have to remember, which I discovered reading a lot about this, is that actually right up to 1900, people didn't really care. You know, Gladstone had an accent, mm -hmm. had a regional accent accent you know um john peel had a regional accent you know darwin had a regional accent and people didn't they weren't down on you just because you didn't sound rp rp was a fairly new invention at the time it's interesting isn't it tom if you look at the uh you know gladstone clearly you know wasn't on the wireless uh <laughs> in his day and that actually what what is it is it as the radio and tv became more powerful in politics as that's why politics veered more towards rp so as not to to discourage but you know because if you look if you go back over what certainly the last 40 years every prime minister's sounded basically much the same uh and yeah. probably much true if you go back further too yeah i mean i was just thinking I mean, harold wilson had a had an accent didn't he uh so is he is he the last one gordon brown i suppose Sounded. Um, oh yeah, sounded, that's a good point. That's a good point. Scottish, <laughs> I, I slightly always... forgot Gordon Brown's. Uh, yeah, it's classless. But, the Scottish Sc is classless. Yeah. But remember that Mrs. Mrs. Thatcher suddenly veered off and said, "You're frit. You're just frit." She veered off into Lincolnshire. Yes. That was brilliant. And yeah, course, she I, I, changed I her voice it... a lot as well. Yeah, I remember seeing an early clip of Blair. I think Blair and Brown before um, before he was prime minister, they were out in in the U.S. somewhere. And this was early Blair, and he was much posher 
than yes. he mm. came. And, and it, was, it was sort of a revelation to me to, to see this. Um, but so yeah, everybody's very, very aware of it, aren't they? And I think, I mean, I, I even find it living in London. I, I grew up in the North East, never had a strong accent. But I, I can hear myself, the words that I, that, you know, France or grass or bath, you know, I can now hear them in my head uh, living in, in the South East in a, in a way that I couldn't up, uh, uh, up North. But today, that makes you authentic, you see. It's like Blair. He had to say, I'm a pr- pretty short, short, straight sort of guy. You had to do the glottal stop. You had to do it. And in fact, it's it's a plus for you, you see. And, and, and Matt, for you as well, sounding Oxfordy, sounding English is pretty bad. And sounding freightfully posh is, is worst of all. Tom McTague from the Atlantic and Libby Post and the Times. And, of course, you can read Libby's column in the Times every Monday. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is Bonjour Macron Mark II. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. Counting this down every week since the start of the year. Well, the final uh, runoff vote for the French presidential election happened yesterday. Emmanuel Macron winning five more years in the Elysee after a pretty convincing win over rival Marine Le Pen. He's the first French president in 20 years to win a second term. But equally, the National Rally won their highest share of the votes in this half hour. We'll speak to two former uh, ambassadors, one British, one French, to find out what this might mean for cross-channel relations. We're also going to hear from some of our correspondents right across Europe to get their sense of the response in Brussels, Berlin, Madrid and Rome. But first, we say bonjour to our man in Paris. Good morning, Charles Bremner. Bonjour, Matt. So, uh, 58.55% to 41.45%. Was that better than expected for Emmanuel Macron, but obviously not as good as it was five years ago when he got, what, 66% of the vote? Yes, it was a huge relief. It was uh, much better than expected two weeks ago when Macron only scored four points ahead of Le Pen in the first round. It's, as you say, it's, uh, an, a, it's, it's a very, very strong, decisive victory. But on the other hand, it has shown up a very, very, very strong uh, section of France which uh, dislikes the president and in fact cannot stand him and which uh, nearly nearly won power. Now the, the, the sort of hot take industry on Twitter, certainly here in London, uh, has been either declaring this a victory for centrism or uh, a, you know an alarming indication of the extent of support for, for uh, far-right policies, albeit not as extreme as, as five years ago to Marine Le Pen. What is your assessment of what this tells us about the politics of France? Well, on the face of it, it shows the, in the end the good sense of the French. They 
they did not take a leap in the dark. They did not uh, go to the extreme that, that uh, they were tempted to go to. Marine Le Pen, you say, is different from five years ago, but Macron did a pretty good job in between the two rounds showing that Marine Le Pen's policies have not changed much at all compared with her, uh, those of her father, who the, the founder of the far-right party uh, in 1972. Uh, and so um, what does this uh, tell us now about where, where Macron goes next? How much did he uh, spell out during the course of the campaign? How, you know, having got this mandate, a pretty convincing mandate, it has to be said, uh, how, what does he plan to do with it? Well, President Macron says everything will be different now for season two of his presidency. He's going to be a new, uh, gentler, kinder, more listening president, he says. He's taken account of the fact that there was very high abstention and that he benefited from the votes of many millions of left-wing voters who didn't who do not approve of him. He's going to announce a new government. This will be more towards the left and more towards green thinking. Of course, he has to win the next parliamentary election in June. He will probably do so with a broader coalition, although Marine Le Pen and Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the far-left leader, are campaigning hard to try to win power for themselves. And uh, we saw, obviously, Mélenchon wasn't far behind Le Pen in the first, the first round of the, uh, of the presidential election. What's been the response across France? Uh, some reports of protests? There have been some protests, mainly by left-wing um, activists in Paris. There was a little bit of aggro, a bit of rioting, which is fairly normal in France with uh, tear gas, riot police. Pretty minor stuff. What, it, what people worry about more is a return to the gilet jaune, uh, yellow vest style of insurrection amongst the, the disaffected lower-income classes who feel that they've been robbed this time around. But they were the people who voted mainly for Marine Le Pen, but also for Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the, the radical leftist. Um, and there's, there's some reports this morning the police have, have shot dead two people in Paris. Is that right? Yes, it's, it's a murky uh, story so far. We don't know what relation that might have to the campaign. Oh, well, Charles Berman, it's been really good speaking. Thank you so much for giving us uh, the rundown uh, in the run-up to the to the the elections. Um, and uh, I'm sure we'll, be, we'll check in with you again, Charles Berman. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. So let's take a look now at what this might mean uh, diplomatically. Uh, and uh, we spoke to them oh, about six months ago now, probably, uh, to get their sense of what Macron was up to. So we thought we'd, we'd bring them back together. Sylvie Berman is a former French ambassador to the UK. Good morning. Good morning. And uh, Peter Ricketts, Lord Ricketts, is a former UK ambassador to France. Morning, Peter. Bonjour, Matt. Bonjour to you, Peter. Peter, first of all, um, your your reading of the result and what it tells us about uh, France in 2022. Peter. No, to me, OK. Um, I think it shows France as a divided country, uh, in many ways an angry country. Um, the first round voting showed that both the far left and the far right uh, scored very significantly. Um, but in the end, um, when they came to choose who is actually going to be their president for the next five years, the French chose Emmanuel Macron. But I think also sending him a strong signal that they wanted him to govern differently. Uh, and I think he's got that message. The uh, symbolism of his big speech uh, last night was very different from uh, what he did in 2017, that long solo walk uh, around the Louvre like a conquering hero. This time he came surrounded with a bunch of young people and was much more informal. And I suspect that that is setting the tone for this second um, period, uh, more approachable, less remote and distant and arrogant. Um, but I think on policy terms, uh, it will be very much uh, what we saw before. 
Sylvie, uh, do you agree with Peter? What's your assessment of, of what the result tells us about France? Yeah, I fully agree with what uh, Peter has said. And it's true that it is a divided country, but at the same time, uh, Emmanuel Macron campaigned uh, also as a pro-European and uh, well, internationalist also, having good relations with the Americans and uh, and uh, also with, uh, of course, well, all countries of the EU uh, wanting to have a closer cooperation with Germany, which was not the case of uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, cooperating with NATO as well. She wanted to withdraw from the uh, integrated uh, structures. And also, it's very important because there is a war in, a war in the middle of Europe. And of course, uh, Emmanuel Macron is considered as a, well, a senior leader in uh, Europe. And uh, so this is uh, very important and probably the reason why of the choice of uh, many people, even if sometimes they don't like him because, well, they consider him uh, as uh, arrogant. Uh, Sylvie, uh, Leo, listener, has been in touch saying, um, if you have time, please ask this. As with Brexit and Trump, the national populist genie is out of the bottle in France. Is Macron in his second term inclined to placate Le Pen voters by adopting tough stances on cultural issues or distance himself from them? What do you think? Is there a, um, I mean, it sounds from Charles, what Charles was just saying, that, that Macron is more likely to, to lean towards the left than the right. Do you think he needs to respond in some way to the 40-odd percent of people who voted for Le Pen? Does he need to appeal to them at all? Uh, yes, uh, well, uh, I, I think it's very difficult for him because, uh, well, you have the extreme right, the extreme left, and they did well, and particularly, uh, well, the uh, far right. And, uh, of course, they're concerned on immigration, on security issues as well, cost of living. But it's not only uh, the, uh, the far right. And I think he has to consider those issues uh, as well. So it makes it more difficult for him. First, well, there is uh, uh, this, uh, these um, legislative elections, but he has to find a policy Oh, that responds to all concerns of the of the French. And um, Peter, what do you think will happen now with the relationship between Britain and France, and more particularly Boris Johnson and uh, Emmanuel Macron? We, when we spoke since back in October, November, there was obviously a lot of talk back then. We were sort of arguing about fishing licenses and whose fault mm-hmm. it was, people coming across the channel and so on. And there was a sense then that Macron was already in a bit of campaigning mode. Uh, and wasn't necessarily in the mood for doing deals with Boris Johnson. Do you think that this this convincing victory for him means that he can maybe dial down a bit on that, or is he just not interested in in Britain and Boris Johnson? I think the hard fact is that um, Britain is not a priority for Emmanuel Macron. Um, he is now, as Sylvie says, the senior experienced statesman in Europe. I think he will see himself playing a major role in the Ukraine crisis, um, steering Europe in the areas of energy dependency on Russia, European defense and so on, working very closely with Chancellor Schultz in Berlin. I think he'll see himself as the key link with President Biden. Um, all those issues will take priority, frankly, over Britain. Uh, on UK and France, I guess that uh, Macron would be interested in trying to put some of these uh, difficult, acrimonious uh, discussions behind us. Um, I think the personal relationship with Boris Johnson is pretty broken, frankly. Um, I don't think there's any trust or confidence there, particularly in Paris. 
So I guess that what he would want is to see signs of real practical cooperation from London, dialing down the rhetoric, coming up with some ideas for working together, getting beyond some of the ideological disputes before he'd be willing to do some sort of big set piece summit uh, with lots of declaratory language. And what would really kill off the prospects of that is if the British government did something like suspending the Northern Ireland Protocol, which would, I think, signal to Macron that the British government still can't be trusted to stick to its word. Um, what do you make of that, Sylvie? In particular, on the on the issue of the Ukraine crisis, and Emmanuel Macron, I think he has in recent uh, last few days or so, has, has sort of dialed down on the uh, speaking to Vladimir Putin quite so often. But but frankly, if Boris Johnson was phoning Putin as often as Macron has been doing, to apparently no impact at all, he'd be a laughing stock in the UK. Is that the case in in France? Is Macron given any credit at all uh, for 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 trying to keep up that dialogue? Uh, no, he was supported for for that, and uh, I think by all the, the parties, and it has been supported in the EU as well, because you need someone who has a link to um, uh, Vladimir Putin. Of course, he was not successful, because I think it was too late, in fact, uh, when he went to Moscow, uh, Vladimir Putin already decided to go to, to war because he was obsessed by the status of Ukraine not being a na- nation and but by what he called the lies of uh, uh, the West and uh, NATO countries. So I, I think it was too late. But at the same time, you will need a link to uh, Vladimir Putin because when you uh, discuss a peace agreement. You don't discuss it with the with your friends. You have to discuss it with the one who launched the war. So of course, uh, it will be a decision to be taken by the Ukrainians. But since uh, neutrality status is at stake, and uh, Volodymyr Zelensky uh, wants uh, well permanent uh, members of the Security Council and other other countries to give guarantees. And I think it will be uh, very useful to have someone who is able to talk to uh, Vladimir Putin. And when he does so, well, he's very very strong and uh, he tells the the truth. And I think uh, this is is important as well. Just finally, I just want to ask you both, if if you were advising uh, Boris Johnson or Emmanuel Macron this morning, uh, what would you be suggesting they were doing to try and repair relations? Have they got any common grounds? What would be your advice to them? First of all, Peter. I think I would say don't expect a big set-piece summit with lots of warm declaratory language in any early time frame. Let's come up with some good ideas for new projects that Britain and France can do together. What we lack at the moment is substance in the relationship. So energy, nuclear energy, defence, find some big ideas that can really Uh, help to develop UK-French relations. And when the practical cooperation is working, including over Ukraine, then later on, try and um, reset the thing with some very public uh, demonstration of what is, after all, one of our closest alliances. Peter Ricketts, Lord Ricketts, thanks so much for that. Uh, Sylvie, your your advice to, to the two men at the heart of all of this? Well, the, the fact is, like Peter said, it's not a priority for France for the time being. The priority, of course, is the uh, crisis. <coughs> sorry, the cry, um, the war in Ukraine, and also the strengthening of the EU defense and uh, EU uh, independence. Uh, so um, I, I, I don't know if he will take any uh, initiative. Of course. 
well, it would be useful to uh, discuss those questions on uh, security because we had a very close cooperation in the past. Uh, and well, of course, energy and nuclear issues, but it's still bilateral issues. We don't have something in common uh, really politically for the time being. Uh, Sylvie Bowman, former uh, French ambassador to the UK. Before that, Peter Ricketts, uh, former British ambassador to France. Speaking overnight, Macron acknowledged that many people had voted for him to block Marine Le Pen, while others had simply stayed at home. I also think of all our compatriots who abstained from voting. Their silence signified a refusal to choose, to which we must also respond. Finally, I think of those who voted for Madame Le Pen, who I know is disappointed this evening. Uh, that was uh, Emmanuel Macron speaking overnight. Well, let's take a quick tour of the uh, of some of Europe's biggest cities now to see the reaction there. Let's start in Brussels, where clearly Emmanuel Macron now thinks he's the king of Europe and uh, will we'll seek to exert that authority right across the EU. Bruno Waterfield, The Times' correspondent in Brussels, reports. When Macron won the elections last night, you could almost hear the sigh of relief, the long, drawn-out few across all the capitals uh, of Europe, especially uh, in Brussels. It's no coincidence that uh, Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz was the um, first uh, to call uh, President Macron um, to congratulate him. That duo have plans, that duo um, have plans to reconfigure um, some aspects of the um, EU over the next uh, five years. So there's a great feeling of relief, but there's unease too. There are parliamentary elections coming um, in June, the French system could be uh, deadlocked if the far left and far right and other opposition parties um, do well in the French National Assembly. There's unease um, over that. Will Macron actually be able to deliver? And more long term, people are beginning to ask after Macron, you know, who's next? I mean, he can't do a hat trick. He can't do it again because the French constitution says he can't stand. And people are very aware um, that in this election, Marine Le Pen got um, nearly 3 million uh, more votes than in 2015, while Macron lost around about 2 million. And that that makes people very, very uneasy. Uh, It's very difficult to see who succeeds uh, Macron. It's very difficult to see that the next five years is going to be um, easy. And there is deep trepidation over what comes next. That's Bruno Waterfield reporting from Brussels. Well, if Macron thinks he's the king of Europe, in part that's because of the departure of uh, Angela Merkel as Chancellor of Germany. She's replaced, of course, by Olaf Scholz, who's faced criticism in recent weeks over Germany's response to the war in Ukraine. Well, Olaf Scholz was first out of the blocks to congratulate Macron. The Times' Oliver Moody is in Berlin and reports on how the news has been received there. Hello, this is Oliver Moody, Berlin correspondent for The Times and The Sunday Times. The immediate response in Germany to the French presidential election result could be characterised as a mixture of relief and alarm. Relief that Macron won, but alarm that more than 40% of the French electorate voted for Le Pen. Berlin is not exactly enamoured of Macron. In recent years, there's been something of a shift in the balance of power within Europe in Paris's favour, and there are plenty of areas of tension between the two governments. But a Le Pen victory would have been fairly catastrophic for Germany, She's been quite explicitly critical of Franco-German cooperation on the campaign trail, and some of her ideas for reforming France and the EU would have brought about an existential crisis in the heart of the bloc, supercharged by the war in Ukraine. This is why Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, together with his Spanish and Portuguese counterparts from the centre-left, 
wrote an op-ed in Le Monde a few days ago describing Le Pen as a candidate of the extreme right who openly places herself by the side of those who attack our freedom and our democracy, the fundamental values that we derive directly from the French Enlightenment. On the other side of the coin, there are those in Germany who are profoundly worried by what the scale of the Le Pen vote says about the political health of Germany's most important partner and of Europe more widely. It's also worth noting that not everyone in Germany fervently wanted Le Pen to lose. The right-wing populist alternative for Germany party, best known as the AFD, has interpreted this historically strong performance by its French allies as a sign that the glory days of the European far-right are by no means over. In response to the result, Tino Schrapalla, one of the leaders of the AFD, said, Emmanuel Macron has won only an apparent victory. Change of course in Europe is a reality and cannot be held back for long. Oliver Moody reports from Berlin there. Well, let's head to France's other big neighbour, Spain. Graeme Keeley is our correspondent in Madrid. Spain's Prime Minister, Pedro Sánchez, congratulated France for electing Macron as president. Uh, Sánchez said in a tweet that France had engaged in supporting a free, strong and just European Union. This is important for Spain as much as France because for Sanchez, Macron was an important ally in the political centre ground. A victory for Le Pen would have been a difficult reverse for Spain's strategy in Europe and would also have helped the far right in Spain. Vox, the far right party here, is the third biggest with 52 seats in the parliament. So any uh, ally in France would have possibly helped Vox in, in Spain. Graham Keeley in Madrid. And finally, we head to Rome to get the reaction to Macron's uh, re-election in Italy. Philip Willen is our correspondent there. Mario Draghi, the pro-European Prime Minister, described it as splendid news that would help to build a strong, cohesive and just Europe. It would also help the continent to respond to the challenges of the moment and in particular to the war in Ukraine. Matteo Renzi, a former centre-left Prime Minister, was also delighted, saying Macron's crushing victory was a beacon of hope for France and Europe. Enrico Letta, the leader of the Democratic Party, was also enthusiastic, saying the French vote had been a defeat for anti-Europeanism, sovereignist nationalism and Vladimir Putin. The victory of Macron Macron is more problematic for Italy's hard-right League Party, which supports Draghi's government of national unity and has had to play down its Euroscepticism in the wake of the pandemic and the war. The League's leader, Matteo Salvini, congratulated Marine Le Pen for winning the votes of 13 million French people, alone against everyone. Forza Italia has been at odds with its right-wing partners over their frequently antagonistic attitude both to France and to Brussels. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio. And we'll get you on very soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.